Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. Here's what the Word of God says. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It was a 1977 two-door hatchback orange Chevette. It had vinyl seats, vinyl dash that had long been cracked by the sun beating down on it. It had four in the floor. It could get zero to 60 in about six months. At some point in its history, the original AM radio had been upgraded and a non-factory tape deck had been attached to the bottom of the dash that worked most of the time unless you, I can't now remember if it was a left turn or a right turn, but one of those turns would cause the tape deck not to work. And in order to fix it, you would jerk the car the other way and whatever wire was loose would reattach and the tape deck would then again play. Now this may surprise you, but when I was in sixth grade, seventh grade, in middle school, I was horribly ashamed. Horribly ashamed, convinced that I was going to be ruined for the rest of my life when my dad would pick me up in his 1977 orange two-door hatchback Chevette. It was awful. I would beg, can you drop me off a block or two before the school so that nobody will see me? And then when we did have to drive past people we knew, I would slide. It was easy to slide in vinyl seats, by the way, but I would slide down in those seats so maybe they wouldn't see that my shame of my family was to drive such a horrible, horrible car. When you're in middle school, so much of who you think you are is bound up in the impression you think you are giving. And I didn't think an orange 1977 two-door hatchback car was going to give the right impression of who I wanted to be. And I was ashamed. Now, whatever you are ashamed of about you will be the thing about you that you tried, you'll, you'll try to diminish You'll try to hide. You'll try to remove from the vision of those in your life. We all must ask the question, what defines us? What's the most significant thing about you? If you were asked today to say what's the most important thing about you, what makes you you, what would you say? <laughs> Probably won't be a 1977 orange Chevette that you've got hidden away in your garage somewhere. Maybe it's what you do for a living. Maybe that's what defines you. Well, I am such and such, and you give the title of your job. Or maybe it's who you're related to. You've met folks like that. When they tell you who they are, somewhere in that conversation, they want you to know that their, their relative is somebody of importance or significance. Or maybe it's what you've accomplished or some talent or skill that you have. It may be who you know. It may even be some academic or athletic accomplishment. 
Friends, I want to make the case this morning that for a Christian, for those of you who have been saved by the blood of Jesus, the most important thing about you is that you have been saved by the blood of Jesus. I want to make the case that it doesn't really matter who you are, who you know, what you've accomplished, what you do for a living, how much or how little is in your bank account. None of that really matters. If you're a believer in Jesus and you've been saved by the blood of Jesus today, then the singularly most important defining character about who you are is that you are saved by the blood of Jesus. There are some professing believers or some professing Christians who keep their faith under wraps. They recognize that it is a liability to, in in, in the context of this increasingly secular culture, they recognize that to declare themselves a follower of Jesus might hurt them in their career or amongst their friends or cause them some, some element of shame. And so there are today some professing Christians who are ashamed to say that they are believers in Jesus. Now, they justify it by claiming that it's not polite to talk about politics and religion in public company, or they'll say they don't want to offend anyone. I think this passage, right in the introduction of the letter to the Romans from Paul, is in direct contrast to those who think that following Jesus can be a private, a secret, a personal faith. Paul declares that he is not ashamed of the gospel, and I think neither should we be ashamed of the gospel. So this morning, from this passage, I want us to see these things. Number one, the gospel alone is the power to save. Paul says he's not ashamed because the gospel is the power to save us from the brokenness of this world. So that's where we're going to begin. That the gospel is the power to save. Secondly, that it is available to save. Praise God, if you can hear my voice today, if you've got breath in your lungs, if your heart is beating, you have the opportunity and the availability to receive the salvation of Jesus today. And then lastly, if you've been saved... And if your sin has been covered by the blood of Jesus, I think we are compelled. We are compelled to preach this salvation. Let's begin with the power to save. You see it right right in the first verse where Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. And then he gives the very reason for this. He says, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is the power to save. Now, I want to I I limit that even more. And I want to say to you that the, the gospel of Jesus is the only power to save. Now, do not miss who Paul is speaking to. Paul is speaking to the church in Rome. The church in Rome lived in the, in the very heartbeat of the Roman culture. And the, cult, the, the religious culture of Rome was open absolutely wide open to any new God or new religion. They were not in any way restrictive or um, hostile to new philosophies, new religions, new practices. They were glad to add any new deity alongside all the other idols that they worshipped. And I think you need to understand that we live in a similar culture today 
that our religious culture of our day is open also to any God and any religion. The culture of our day is glad to add in any more pagan uh, idol worship alongside all the other pagan and idol worships that our culture accepts. What Rome was not willing to tolerate was an exclusive claim to truth. And what our culture today is not willing to tolerate is an exclusive claim to truth. In these verses, Paul is declaring that the only hope and the only power to save is in Jesus Christ alone. He's making an exclusive claim that the power to save, the only power to save, rests in the blood of Jesus. This is a rejection of the idols and the gods of Rome. This is a rejection of the power of man. This is a rejection of the righteousness of man. The power to save uh, a man from the brokenness of sin is not found in the work or the effort of man. It's not found in your individual effort. It's not found in the collective effort of government or society. It's not found in the, the morality or the goodness of man. It's not found in the mind of man like science and technology. No, the gospel alone is the power to save us from the reality of the brokenness of this world and the curse of sin. By the way, this is why we preach. It's why we teach. It's why we spend millions and millions each year taking the gospel around the globe through our missionary efforts. This is why we encourage each other to sacrifice worldly comfort for eternal gain because we believe that in Jesus Christ alone is the only power to save us from our sin. It's the power to save. It is the only power to save. And dear friends, it is a sufficient power to save. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now there's a simpleness to the gospel that I think is rather off-putting to the arrogance of man. We often desire for the work of salvation to be more complicated than it is. To the mind of man, it seems too simple that salvation comes through simple belief that Jesus died for our sins on the cross, rose again, and lives today. We like complicated. Complicated makes it feel like we're sophisticated. Sophisticated makes, make it, makes us think like we're intelligent. And the more complicated and sophisticated we can make, the smarter we think we are. And so when man, the, the sophisticated secular man, approaches the simplicity of the gospel, it's a bit off-putting. What do you mean? The only thing to be saved is to believe, and the Word of God says, yes, the power to save is for all who believe. Now, let's, let's articulate how simple this is. The, the requirements of the gospel are simple enough that even the youngest child among us can understand that they have sinned, that Jesus died for their sins, and if you believe in Jesus, that he died for your sins and rose again, the Bible says you will be saved. The gospel's not more complicated than that. A child can understand the condemnation of their sin. A child can believe that Jesus died for their sins. A child can believe that Jesus rose from the grave victorious over sin. In our fleshly pride, some want to add something to this childlike faith. 
but when we try to add something to this simple faith of believing in Jesus, this denies the sufficient power of the gospel. This rejects the sufficient work of Jesus on the cross. To be saved, all must have childlike faith that Jesus' death was sufficient to, to atone for my sin, for your sin, and for anyone's sin who would believe. And I think to this, dear friends, Paul says, don't be ashamed of that. Oh, in our prideful arrogance, we might want to have something more sophisticated, something more complicated, something that took some mental acuity to understand. But Paul says, oh, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel that is the power to save. I'm not ashamed of the gospel that is the power to save anyone who would believe. It's simple, elementary even, but it is the power of God to save. Don't be ashamed of the gospel that is sufficient to save a child who believes or an adult who believes, the church attender who believes or the rebel who believes, the criminal who believes or the vilest sinner who believes. The power of the gospel of Jesus is sufficient to save anyone who believes. And the church ought to say amen to that. It is the power to save. And there's a good word here, and that is that it is available to save. In fact, I would even press that, not, not, not restrict that here, but expand that. It is available to all. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This distinction between the Jews and the Greeks is not to distinguish a hierarchy, but to indicate that there is no one who does not have access to the saving work of Jesus, the gospel. Paul is simply saying the gospel is available to everyone who believes. You know, most of the things this side of heaven are restricted. They're limited, they're rationed. Now, some of those things are limited, rationed, restricted just by the nature of things. And so the truth is that, you know, we like to, we like to say in the United States that everybody has equal access or equal opportunity, but, but we're not all equal. Some of us are smarter than others, amen? Some of us are better looking than others. Some of us are more athletic than others. When, when the Lord was handing out the athletic gene, he skipped right over me, and uh, that was a frustrating thing all the way through middle school and high school. Friends who could do things that I could not do then and I cannot do now. It's why to this very day I won't play my wife in basketball. What husband wants to get beat up by his own wife? Amen? So I just sit on the sidelines and I don't like basketball. I'm not going to play it with you. It's not fair. But that's just the reality of this world. Most things in this world are restricted, limited, or rationed. You may not know this, and so I just want you to be aware that I will likely never in my lifetime, I have no hope today of ever being able to fly on a Gulfstream G700 jet. I, and I'm, 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 I'm catching from your reaction that you're pretty upset about that too. You may not know this, and so just so that you're aware, the base price of that jet is about $75 million before you begin to spec it out for your personal needs. 
I don't know what I'd use it for, but it'd be pretty fun to have one, I think. But I don't have any hope. There, there, there's nothing about my financial situation right now, and there's nothing about the future of my financial situation that will ever, that gives any hope at all of me ever being able to even walk into the, wherever they sell such things, even the building, and getting taken serious about buying one. I have no hope of ever purchasing a, the, the $169 million penthouse at 432 Park Avenue, New York, which in July when it went on the market became the most expensive listing of real estate in the United States of America. And they say it has a great view of Central Park. What, what, I mean, who wouldn't want to live there? Actually, I would not want to live there. But if I did, I have no hope of ever being able to purchase such a, a, a piece of property or owning such a thing. But friends, there are a lot of things that you could add to this list that I'll never be able to purchase. There are a lot of events that I'll never be able to attend. There are a lot of things that I'll never be able to experience because of who I am physically, what I have financially, even what I, what I possessed academically, uh, intellectually. There are some things that I just intellectually won't ever be able to do, not smart enough or sharp enough to be able to do that. And that's the reality of living in a fallen world. Everything about this world is restricted, it's, it's rationed, it's limited. But I want you to hear me very carefully. In a world where nothing is equally experienced, equally available, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power to save, and it is available to all who will believe. The gospel is available to the rich and to the poor. It is available to the weak and the strong. It is available to the great of the ones who have great intelligence and the most simple-minded. It is available to the old and to the young. It is available to those who grew up in church and those who've lived wicked lifestyles. The gospel is available to all. And I can't think of a more glorious truth than the gospel of salvation is absolutely universally available to all who would believe on Jesus Christ who died for our sins, went to the grave, and rose again victorious over our sin. It is available to all and it is available by faith now salvation is available to all who would believe in faith meaning faith to believe that jesus died and rose again faith to believe that salvation is in christ alone but there is an important distinction to understand about the availability of the gospel listen very carefully to what i'm about to say the gospel is universally available in other words it is available to everyone without restriction without distinction if you're alive today, the gospel is available to you. That's what I mean by it is universally available, but it is exclusively received. This is important. It is universally available. In other words, you can have it today, but it is exclusively received. The availability of the gospel does not guarantee receipt. To receive the gospel requires that you believe in faith. Thus, the gospel is available to all, but only through faith alone. Maybe more, put more simply, the gospel is available, but it's not automatic. It's, it's free to have, but you must believe in faith to receive. 
Salvation is available to all, but only and exclusively those who believe in faith will be saved. What a glorious truth, dear friends. Paul is declaring, I'm not ashamed of this wonderful truth that in the gospel of Jesus, there is the power to save from our sins. There is the hope of salvation from the condemnation of our sins. And it is available to all universally and exclusively received by those who believe on Jesus unto salvation. And I think, dear friends, this wonderful truth, there is a compelling reality behind this. And I, this, I think, takes me back to verse 16, where he begins this statement by saying, I'm not ashamed. And that is to say that knowing this truth compels us to preach salvation. Now, don't get hung up on the word preach. There are people who have a profession of preaching. I am a preacher. But preach to preach means to proclaim, to make known. And I want to make the case today that if you know Jesus, then you're a preacher of the gospel. Now, you may be a teacher. You may be in law enforcement. You, you, you may be in, in a profession, a, a banking or, 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 or medical or, or something that, that has absolutely nothing to do with Sunday morning proclamation behind a pulpit. But if you know Jesus this morning, and you are aware of, you have tasted the, the power of salvation to save. You understand it's available to all, and you have received it exclusively through faith. I think knowing that compels you, propels you to proclaim it to everyone who will give a half-hearted even listen to you. you. We are compelled to preach salvation to all who will hear. Two things here. Number one, I think we're obligated. I think we are obligated to preach. In verse 15, look up just one verse with me. In verse 15, Paul says, So I am eager, looking forward to, preach, I, for I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. If you don't know the story about Paul, in almost every city where he went to preach the gospel, he was met with a hostile reaction. Sometimes the pre his preaching of the gospel caused riots in the city. Riots so severe that the, the city leaders begged him to leave. Sometimes he endured beatings because of that. Sometimes he was in prison. Sometimes he, he, uh, he suffered uh, unfair accusations. And yet, even though every time Paul preaches the gospel, he, he receives by the, the, the world around him a pretty hostile and negative reaction, he says, man, I'm looking forward to, desirous of going to, to Rome to preach the gospel. Now, he's not doing that. He's not desiring that. He's not eager to preach the gospel because somehow preaching the gospel for him has some personal advancement. In fact, it's a pretty simple case to make that he, every time he preaches the gospel, it's personally very costly to him. He's not eager to preach the gospel because it's safe. In fact, it's a very simple argument to make that it's dangerous for him to preach the gospel. He's not eager to preach the gospel because it's easy. 
imprisonment and beatings and whippings and all the rest that come with it doesn't make the preaching of the gospel easy for him. And certainly it's not celebrated. The, the world around him is not going to celebrate the fact, here comes Paul, and we're so glad to have you, dear Paul. Come and be celebrated in our community. No, he'll be hated, he'll be derided, and he might be uh, uh, abused as he comes into the city. And yet he is eager to preach the gospel because of the conviction of verse 16. Because he believes and he has known that in Jesus Christ alone is the power of salvation. Now, I think in this, listen to me carefully, is a moral obligation. There's a moral obligation when you know something good to make it known. And the greater the consequence of, good, of the goodness, the greater the obligation to make it known. Now, imagine with me for just a minute. If I knew of a treatment that could heal you from a terminal disease, I, I knew of the treatment, maybe I had even received the treatment, and it had healed me of the terminal disease, and I, and I, I found out that you had that same terminal disease as well. Now imagine with me that I didn't say anything to you. Maybe you came to me and you said, Pastor, I've got this disease, and the doctors say I have just a short amount of time to live, and I, knowing that I had received the treatment, I looked at you in the eyes and went, oh, I am so sorry to hear that. Hmm. Well, hope you make it. Off I went, and off you go. Now imagine with me that days or weeks later, you find out you find out that there is a treatment and that I knew about it all the while. Would you not judge my silence as immoral? Would, would you not be angry with me? And I think rightly so. Pastor, you knew what could save my life. You didn't say a word to me. I thought we were friends. I thought you cared about me. All of those things would be right accusations to bring, and I would have no answer to rebut them because I did have a moral obligation. If I knew what could save you, then I was obligated to tell you what could save you. And in that moment, there would be no, there would be no abiding by me saying, well, I didn't want to intrude in your life. You would, you would reject that. And I wouldn't say, well, you know, I didn't want to, I didn't want to contradict your doctors or any of that. no. None of that would have assuaged your brokenheartedness over my, 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 um, my wickedness of not declaring something that could save your life. Dear friends, listen to me. Salvation is in Jesus Christ alone. No matter what it costs, I believe we are compelled to proclaim it to the world. Salvation is in Jesus Christ alone. There is no other cure. There is no other remedy. There is no other salvation from the sin that condemns us but in Jesus alone. And I think we are under a moral obligation to declare it to the world. And there will be no safety and there will be no um, uh, excusing us of saying, well, I didn't want to offend somebody. And I didn't want to upset them. And I didn't want to contradict what they believed. Dear friends, on the day of judgment, I don't think anybody will be concerned about offending them this side of heaven. I don't think anybody will be concerned about us um, uh, contradicting something they held to be true. I think all those who will be saved will be rejoicing in those who declared the salvation of Jesus into their lives. 
We are compelled. We are motivated. We are obligated to preach. And I think that by the gospel, we are also motivated to preach. Well, so on the obligated side is sort of the negative side. So we cannot help but preach the gospel. But, but, but I think in the motivated side, there's something inside of us that once we've known the gospel, we can't help but do it. I think there's an element of internal motivation in Paul's declaration in, in verse 16 of not being ashamed of the gospel. Now let's be honest for just a moment and acknowledge that in our day there is certainly pressure, there's, there's certainly the pressure of shame against those who put their trust in Jesus. The world accuses those who put their trust in Jesus as being ignorant, unsophisticated, Intolerant, hateful, bigoted, arrogant, foolish, simple-minded. But friends, those same forces were true in Paul's day as well. Nothing's really changed. And yet he was motivated to keep preaching Jesus. He was motivated because he was not ashamed. And he was not ashamed because he was convinced that salvation is found in Jesus alone. Now, here is a distinction that we must understand. Those who have known the saving power of the gospel are motivated to proclaim the saving power of the gospel. Those who have known the power of God to save, for those who believed are motivated to proclaim the power of God to, do, to, uh, to, to save those who believed. Listen, that, I, I see this principle in the most mundane, simple things all the time. Some of you will go to the Dollar Tree and you'll find a great deal. And you can't help yourself but tell everybody you know, you need to go to the Dollar Tree and get this great deal. Because you found something good you're motivated to tell somebody else how much more than trinkets in the Dollar Tree should we not be proclaiming to our friends, to our family, to our world, to our neighbors, to the globe, there is hope in Jesus Christ alone. There is hope in Jesus Christ alone. In Jesus alone is the power to save. Don't be ashamed of that. It is the only hope of salvation. During the, the Reformation, there were, there were a lot of consequential things happening in the world. You may be familiar with Martin Luther and nailing his 95 theses up to the, to the uh, chapel door of, at Wittenberg Church. That's very well known. But there were some things that happened after that that were just as consequential. There was a guy by the name of uh, Zwingli, which is a great name, by the way, who lived in Zurich, Switzerland. And he bought into the Reformation, and he, he gathered some men around him to begin to study the Word, the Bible. That was revolutionary in its day. People didn't study the Bible for themselves. But Zwingli didn't appreciate that what he was setting loose was a fire he could not control. And so 
these men that began to study the Bible with him began to be convinced that salvation was in Jesus alone. Not in the dispensations of the church, but in the grace of Jesus alone. As a result, the, the leaders of this group began to do some things that found themselves in conflict with the established church, the most significant of which is they began to baptize believers. One of those, one of those leaders that was baptizing folks was a guy by the name of Felix Mans. On January the 5th, 1527, he was tried and convicted and sentenced to die as a heretic for preaching the gospel of Jesus. He was taken from his prison cell and he was marched down to the river where they planned to bind his hands and his feet and to plunge him into the freezing waters of the river to drown him to death. But all along the way from his imprisonment to the, uh, to the place of his execution, he had opportunity to, to recant, to say it was all wrong, to say there wasn't hope in Jesus alone, and maybe, maybe have his life spared. But something pretty amazing happened as he walked to his death. A couple of things happened. Number one, his mother and his brothers were there. And as the crowd around him shouted at him to recant, they shouted all the louder, don't you do it. They encouraged him to remain faithful to the gospel. They encouraged him to walk to his death, faithful in what he had preached. And for his part, he walked all the way down to the river. And then when they bound his hands and his feet, and even as they were preparing to throw him over into the icy waters, with every step and with every breath, he preached the gospel. That there is hope in Jesus Christ alone. Repent and be saved. You have to ask a question. What would compel a man to give his life in such a manner? What would compel a mother to walk beside her own son on the way to his death, encouraging him not to recant, not to plead for his life, but to remain faithful to the gospel? What would motivate brothers to encourage their own brother to march to his death, faithful in preaching the gospel and not recant and plead for his life. And the only thing I can say to that is that they were not ashamed of the gospel, which is the power to save for all those who believe. It was worth giving his life for. It was worth giving up a son for. It was worth giving up a brother for because they had known the gospel they believed the gospel, and they were not ashamed of the gospel. Friends, right now, right now, we are living in consequential days. And I know, I know there is extreme pressure on you. There's pressure on you at your work. There's pressure in, on you in your families 
If those of you who are students, there is pressure on you in your peer class in school. And the world is saying to you right now, if you want to believe in Jesus, fine, but don't you say a word about it publicly. If you want to worship Jesus, fine. You do it in the privacy and the secrecy of your church building, but don't you let the gospel leak out and go into the public square. And can I just say to you, that's not new. That's the same old song the world's been singing since Genesis 3. And the response of the church must be, we are not ashamed of the gospel, for it alone is the power to save for all those who will believe. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening. And until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the kingdom.